Let's talk about your next patient. This gentleman presented in August 2007 at the age of 59 with a PSA only of 4.6. I don't know exactly what preceded that, but I think that that was a significant change for him. And so a biopsy was recommended and revealed Gleason 3 plus 4 cancer in 8 out of 12 cores sampled. He received neoadjuvant hormonal therapy followed by radiation with a combination of external beam and brachytherapy and his PSA natured at approximately 1.6. However, only about six months later, PSA rose rapidly to 15. He continued on watchful waiting or observation at that time, and PSA four months later jumped up to 42. And at that time, bone scan showed extensive bony metastases. He was initiated on combined androgen blockade. This was August 2009, as well as zolandronic acid every three months. And he initially had an excellent PSA response, and his PSA natured at 1.9. But within about six months, his PSA, the next time it was checked, was up to 37. So his bicalutamide was stopped, and one month later, his PSA was 75. He was asymptomatic from his disease, and at that point, he presented to me for initial consultation, and he was very interested in sepalusal tea at the time. And I was a little hesitant because I was concerned about, again, the pace of his disease, but so I started him on ketoconazole at that time and worked to get insurance approval for sipilusal T. And initially he was on low-dose ketoconazole, 200 milligrams, three times a day. And after one month, his PSA went up. He was still feeling okay. And we were still working on insurance approval because his insurance initially denied coverage for the sipilusal T. So I increased his ketoconazole to 400 milligrams, three times a day, and added some hydrocortisone. And remarkably, his PSA started to go down. And fortunately, after a few months on that therapy with a stable PSA, his insurance agreed to covering the sipilusal T. So just over the last month or so, he received the sipilusal T. He completed his last infusion about 10 days ago. Unfortunately, the week of his final treatment, he called me to tell me that he was having new pain in his left pelvic region with pain and numbness radiating down his left leg. And I ordered an MRI scan, which showed some progressive disease in the bone lesions in that area, as well as some soft tissue disease with some extension into the epidural spaces and compressing the nerve roots. So he was able to complete his course of the sepalusal T, and he's now been initiated on some radiation therapy to that area to palliate his pain. And I've ordered restaging scans to assess the extent of his disease, and those are in the works right now. So, Matt, anything new in terms of, or maybe you can just kind of review what we know about the mechanism of action of sipulusal T, what the clinical trial data are, and how do you think it comes together? Yeah, so it's a very interesting product profile. So this is a dendritic cellular vaccine, and in many ways it was studied as almost adjuvant therapy for metastatic disease, right? So you take patients with progressive CRPC and metastases, you treat them with a course of cell T, and then you follow them. The interesting part about the product profile is that there's a clear overall survival benefit seen in the impact study, but with no clear metrics of a delay in disease progression or other indicators of a direct anti-tumor effect. So I think most of us take that to mean that there was some anti-tumor effect, but either of a magnitude or timing that couldn't be appreciated in the conduct of that trial, but that ultimately translated into an OS benefit. But clearly a very different 
kind of set of observations than we see with traditional cytotoxic therapies or hormonal agents. In terms of the precise mechanism of action immunologically, I think it still is unclear. There's evidence of cellular immune response. There's some data about a humoral immune response. But in reaching back to the translational science of the IMPACT trial, it's hard to know with certainty which of those activities accounted for the clinical benefits seen in the study. And in many ways, it will be very difficult to sort out. Do you have any sense of sort of what fraction of patients benefit from this treatment? So in the absence of other metrics of an anti-tumor activity, for example, it's very hard to know. One can look at analyses to look at immunologic responders versus non-responders. And the observation is that those who respond have a better outcome, but that's sort of the classic responder versus non-responder analysis. And it's not at all clear that that demonstrates the mechanism of activity. It just simply says that those who respond do better. So it's hard to know if that represents a diagnostic test or a true indication of mechanism by which an overall survival benefits conferred. So it's quite hard to know. How did this man tolerate the treatment, Stacey? For the series of three infusions, the initial infusion he did fine. With the second infusion, he had a slight infusional reaction with some primarily rigors. With the third infusion, he had a more severe reaction. He had real rigors and spiked temperature to 103 degrees Fahrenheit and was drenched in sweat. Once he was treated, we actually had to hold the last few cc's of the last infusion but within a few hours, he improved. And once home, he has reported no adverse effects. And Matt, how does this story compare to patients that you've taken care of? So I think it highlights a classic challenge in that. So a well-selected patient, clinically stable, Cipilus-LT, very reasonable therapeutic option at that point. But this is a humbling disease, and you can't know what the future holds. So even a patient looked perfectly stable, great candidate for treatment, clinically progressed in the time he was receiving therapy and ultimately required radiation. So um, very important kind of example in that regard. I think the other part about this patient, I think the restaging scans will be very valuable to get a sense for his total burden of disease. Since he's now had his sole site of symptomatic metastasis radiated or is ongoing, it'll be interesting to see what disease he has outside of that field. And that's going to think be very important in thinking about what next reasonable steps in treatment. What are the treatment options next that you'd most likely be thinking about? So if this is a patient who has limited disease in his pelvis and that disease has now been radiated, he might be someone who can be observed for a while without other treatments. And that would be attractive, particularly since he just completed his Cipilus-LT and you'd like not to introduce other therapies that might mitigate its benefit. In the more likely event that his restaging studies show extensive metastatic disease, then I think the clear message is you need to get on with appropriate treatment and not worry about whether or not that would impact the benefit of his most recent therapy. Again, any impressions about him as a person, Matt? No, I think he had his head on his shoulders. He was an engineer. I think he really understood what was going on very well. We probed a little bit about his concerns about chemotherapy because I think the reasons that individual patients are resistant to the idea of chemotherapy can vary considerably. And he was interesting, he kind of gave an unexpected answer, which is he just said, you know, 
it's kind of a blunt mechanism of action. It's not very elegant. And, you know, that was kind of the impression he gave. That was his resistance to chemotherapy. So it wasn't a particular set of concerns about side effects or quality of life issues. So I think he's someone who really will accept the recommendation for chemotherapy when that treatment's appropriate. Stacy, anything else about him? I guess I would say as a community oncologist and the use of cipolucil T, and we alluded to this a little earlier, I think it's very challenging to find the right patient to give this treatment to in the right time frame. It's always been kind of strange to me, Matt, as you were pointing out earlier, to try to understand what's really going on. Do you think that in some way this is having an anti-tumor effect that's delayed, and that's why these patients, quote, initially progress? That's one of the hypotheses to explain the results of the impact trial. And certainly, you know, given the intended therapeutic effect by enhancing the immune system, there is good reason to consider that, but there's no direct clinical evidence that that's the case. I think it's a testable hypothesis, and I'd love to see that kind of question tested in future clinical trials. How would you test it? Well, you could do a trial in patients who have evaluable disease, and you would treat them and see if you delay time to progression, or that you'd actually see an anti-tumor effect. So, you'd have to pick a very early group of patients who you would be willing to follow through that course. The impact trial, most of the patients needed to go on to other therapies fairly promptly. So it can be done, but not all that easy. There may be other intermediate markers that could be considered, even things like circulating tumor cell assessments in patients without detectable metastatic disease, where you could support a long-term observational study before other treatments are required. 